Welcome to the Aviation Safety Community podcast, presented by the Aviation Safety Community. This podcast follows a series of conversations with your host, Grenville Hudson, and field experts to discuss aviation safety, the latest trends, and industry insights. Oh, hello, and uh, welcome to another Aviation Safety Community podcast. And uh, I have with me Jerry Allen, who's a senior advisor with the Just Culture Company. Um, J- uh, Jerry works in uh, workplace environments uh, or improving workplace environments through work accountability, root cause analysis, and reliable outcome models. Jerry has a proven capability in implementation of just culture in high risk industries. Jerry, uh, how are you going? Oh, good, good. Thanks for the opportunity to to be with you today. Appreciate that. No worries. Um, Jerry, look, uh, maybe you could just give us a bit of a background of yourself and some of the projects you're working on at the moment or or have been in in the past. be quite interesting. Yeah, sure. Um, As a part of the Just Culture Company, we've been involved in this space for roughly the last 27 years, uh, give or take a year or so. Uh, with regard to collaborating with high-risk industries, as you referred to in the introduction. Um, You know, way back in the day, we started in principally in healthcare aviation, and there were a few other odds and ends groups that were a part of the first symposium we did in what we called back then high-consequence industries. And that was, of course, healthcare aviation. I think there were a few energy folks. There might have been a few nuclear folks. And uh, even an odd pipeline uh, person that was in the in in the group at the time when we did the original symposium, but we did the first few. Uh, we being, uh, I assisted David Marks in delivering those, and this was back in the probably the ninety six ninety seven time frame, um, just to really validate that the model that we were, you know, talking about at the time and that that David had developed, which is the same model actually that I'll talk about in, in our work today, uh, just to. You know, to really sort of test out the, you know, give it a give it a run around the track, so to speak, and and uh, we found that the the model was very valid for helping people, not only understand but judge more fairly um, a wide range of behaviors that they would encounter uh, in the workplace across a range of situations, not only safety outcomes but uh, also around you know breaches of, of basic values between you know one person to another. So the the model can accommodate. The model is not outcome-based, as you'll hear me say over and over again. Uh, It is quality of choice-based. So anytime we're either looking at something through the lens of an outcome that's happened or simply looking at, you know, where conduct between two people was not what we wanted or what we expected, then then the model's in play. Right. Um, Are you able to give us a bit of a, a quick or brief overview of how the model works? Sure. We we have um, a five behavior, what we call a five behavior model, and, and it contemplates um, a, a range of choice and admitting and acknowledging right up front that human error is the what we would call the lowest culpability part of the model. Um, and it is not a choice, of course, because by definition, human error is unintentional. But the rest of the model being at-risk behavior, reckless conduct, uh, behavior with knowledge and purpose to cause harm, those four are choice. And so when we talk about the spectrum of human behavior, it is it is kind of working left to right, if you want to visualize it, that, you know, we start with, you know, un- unintended error, right, where someone did simply did something other than what they intended to do. 
Um, and then we talk about choice being first and foremost at risk behavior where either somebody doesn't recognize the risk that they're taking or, or they think they're in a safe space is, is the way we often say it, right? You know, technically we define it as where someone does not recognize the risk or mistakenly believes it to be justified. But we all drift, right? And that's a term we use very frequently when we talk about high consequence events and, and industries where there's always the potential for those high consequence events is that, you know, we do our best to set up work systems to accommodate human fallibility, but at the same time, we understand that people will drift into risky choices. And and that's one of the basic tenets of, of our view of just culture is that, you know, organizations have an obligation to design good systems, but, and frankly, as good systems as they can given their constraints. But at the same time, we understand anytime we put fallible people into those systems, eventually people will drift. And sometimes that's because, you know, they're overconfident or overcomfortable with the, the conditions that they work in every day. You know, they've done things relatively the same way over a course of time, and there's not been harm associated with those things. So they get reinforced. And, you know, so drift is a part of the normal, you know, human condition, if, if we can use that term. You know, the other three, reckless knowledge and purpose, are pretty high culpability. I mean, recklessness by definition is a conscious choice to disregard risk and disregard the potential for harm. And even in legal constructs, you know, recklessness is usually the threshold for consideration of higher culpability sanction. Knowledge and purpose, which are the last, the remaining two in the model, are, you know, really where it, there's not only a high degree of consciousness, but much more towards especially for the the highest culpability piece here purpose to harm that's almost premeditation right where i i want right. to harm someone i make a plan to do it and i carry it out right so that's mm -hmm. that's pretty high on the in fact from a, a legal perspective that's the highest level of culpability that you can can achieve if achieves the right word right mm. <laughs> uh, I, it's interesting um and um i was thinking like in You've actually worked in Australia, haven't you? You've actually uh, done some work in, in Australia, and, that, and that's been in the just culture area, hasn't it? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, we, yeah. it was about 17 years ago now, actually, if I do the math, which just keeps me reminded that I'm getting on in years. But, yeah, <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> so uh, you would have come up against um, the Australian workplace uh, norms, and I guess one of them is, like, we have this Fair Work Commission and we have uh, enterprise bargaining agreements and all that sort of thing. And and I'm just wondering how you would see this uh, model fitting in with those types of uh, um, that side of the employment situation here in Australia. Yeah, I, I guess a couple of thoughts there. I mean, one, you know, back in the day, it, it wasn't necessarily our within our remit to to as we were talking about earlier, to kind of build that bridge between labor and management of the organization at the time. Mm -hmm. But we were trying to to create a common language set, which I think was very important um, in terms of understanding the model, because, you know, any anytime you can get to a place where there's a better or more common understanding of, of what a breach of of duty really is in the context of the organization, regardless of whether what it says in the in the enterprise bargaining agreement, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I did a few investigations helping in that day, helping the client look into why, and the term I just used in describing the model was drift, looking at, at why 
where we identified some significant drift in the organization, why was it occurring, right? Was it due mm-hmm. to individual choice? Was it due to work systems? Was it due to both? And in fact, we discovered a number of instances where there was, you know, pretty risky stuff going on. But at the same time, you know, this model and this language set and this, I'd call it a mutual desire for justice, if I can use that term, you know, did exist because the unions were engaged and, and, and they wanted to, you know, do their part to, to help reduce risk where possible. Uh, of course, against a legal structure and a backdrop where it was often contentious about, you know, whether or not it was the right thing to do to take disciplinary action against a, a member, you know, but against yeah. the model, you know, it, it kind of takes that and puts it on the side and says, let's just talk a common language about the choices people made. And, yeah. and, and that, that became the important objective is to try to establish that common language set. Yeah. So in some ways, um, there's, there seems to be like a buy, there has to be some level of buy-in though from from labor and uh, in Absolutely. you know a highly unionized environment that that seems pretty important yeah well it's essential yeah i mean i mean yeah. and it has to start from day one and that was part of our strategic roadmap with regard to that change change plan for the whole organization is hmm. how do we bring the unions along at the same time as the management of the organization and get them all you know collectively to try to hold that mirror up and say how are we contributing to the risk in this organization yeah. And what can we do about it? Yeah. And, and you know, there's this uh, ever pervading uh, uh, terms of uh, negligence and re- what's reasonable. Is that something you might be able to help us with? Well, I, I'll just share our perspective from the Just Culture Company view is that they're, they're regardless of what we're talking about, Australasia, whether you're talking about, you know, Europe and the UK, whether you're talking about the US. There is usually a fairly widely held misunderstanding about what recklessness is, and sorry, uh, but negligence is. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, there, there's different degrees of negligence, right? There's what you would call ordinary negligence, which is, you know, in most Western law systems, equivalent to human error. Um, when you start talking about reckless conduct, then you get into something typically described as gross negligence, and when we talk about that, then again, that fits in our model from from a legal descriptive perspective, but also it helps people understand that, you know, there, there's different kinds of negligence, and that is something that you have to be aware of as you get into the judgment spaces. You know, human error is not culpable in that model, right? Mm, it's not okay. culpable in ours, and it should not be culpable in most Western law systems. And, and we, we use this term, uh, you know, what a reasonable person would do or what is that also involved in your your model, like uh, reasonability? or? Yeah, absolutely. We we lean heavily when we sort of try to help people become better judges, which is part of our task when we train people on our, our view of just culture. You know, inevitably, especially if you're in a management role, you have to put on your judge hat occasionally and you have to judge your own employees and possibly even others in terms of, you know, the, the conduct that they engaged in. And as we teach them how to do that more effectively, we lean heavily into the application of both the subjective, which is the person's view, what do they know, think and believe, but we also lean very heavily into the objective, which is that reasonable person test. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's always a comparative look. We don't, you know, we say, because we're not trying to prove in court, you know, the through evidence what somebody did or did not do 
which is the subjective, you know, legal perspective in the, on the world. The objective piece, though, is simply would others have done the same thing and would they have seen the same risks? And both yeah. of those are very important questions. And so, yeah, w but we never do one without the other. We always advocate the subjective and objective together to give you that view of whether they converge or diverge. And typically, the more they diverge, then you're, you're pointing more towards the higher culpability levels of conduct. Right. And and like no blame culture, uh, it's a term that's used a lot in aviation safety management and that. <laughs> but um, where, where, where do you see uh, this going, like no blame and, and just culture? Where, do they complement each other or are they totally well, independent? Uh, our view is no blame is, is outdated and just needs to go away. Pardon me for right. being direct. But yeah. This issue of no blame, it, it's a, it, it carries some baggage because of, you know, decades of history where we say in the safety space, as long as you hold up your hand and, you know, turn in that, you know, that report about what you did or what you almost did, you know, there'll be no blame. That's, that's mm. historically been the context. We would simply say in our model, you know, no blame would very, very roughly equate to human error where we would say it was unintended conduct, maybe you did something inadvertently that you didn't intend to do. And our model would accommodate that to say, accept that human fallibility and fix your mm -hmm. system, right? So mm -hmm. that's our view on the no blame world, but that yeah. term no blame really does need to go away because you know that, that sort of alludes organizationally that as long as you hold up your hand and put in that report, nothing's gonna happen to you. Well, yeah. what if you engage in a very risky choice, right? What if you, mm -hmm. you know, behave recklessly, then you should stand accountable. So, you know, our, our model is about shared accountability. It's not about no blame, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I um, manage uh, some safety um, operations and that, and I find a lot of people use this no blame culture in terms in sort of like uh, the father confessor type thing, you know, that they, mm -hmm. they report it right. thinking, that once they've reported it, that's it. They've they've uh, they've already got forgiveness, so to speak. Right. But yeah, uh, you've, you've gone yeah. into the booth and you've confessed and you're clear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I think you're right. Well, I know you're right in what you're saying that you know that there's another side to this that you have to look at, and people have to be aware that there are consequences for their actions. So, well, yeah. you you referenced the you know sort of the union angle of. Uh, of use of just culture and use of this model earlier. And, you know, even, even in heavily unionized organizations where there might even be a, you know, an acrimonious relationship between labor and management, mm -hmm. you know, in our experience over the decades, we've never encountered an organization that says, you know, we want a blank check for our members. They can do whatever they want. They can yeah. you know, engage in reckless conduct or very risky conduct. And, you know, yeah. Everyone has said we we believe there should be lines of accountability out there. Right? Yeah, and, and I think yeah, and I think the unions are, are just as um, hot on this as as what you're saying. That you know, the, I've, my experience with unions is that they just don't want people to get away with pure negligence. At the end of the day, they want it. Well, yeah, and and our our experience in in uh, uh, healthcare recently has kind of illustrated that. You know, in in one particular large system, they shared data with us that their their rates of grievance uh, have gone down for by about fifty percent. Right. So, oh. 
in terms of wrongful termination and, and those sorts of grievances, you know, we can see a direct correlation between, you know, where there's better transparency and use of this model, then, then there's some mutual benefit, not only to the, to the employees, because they avoid the wrongful termination, you know, trauma that they have to go through when that happens, and employers avoid all the, the negativity and, you know, associated mm -hmm. with that as well. So, yeah, there's, there's some correlation between effect, you know, a better, a better way to do it being yeah. a better, better system of workplace justice and some good outcomes for both individuals and organizations. And so in terms of uh, safety culture and how do you see just culture fitting in with safety culture? But it, the, the analogy we often use is just culture has to be basically a motherboard. I mean, it's got to be what you wire a lot of things into. Right? Yeah. Because it goes right down to how effectively is an organization at applying their values, right? And and in particular, how does that shape the culture of the organization? From a safety perspective, yes. You know, every mm -hmm. high consequence organization has to have a strong safety culture or they won't be in business, right? Mm -hmm. but Absolutely. Also about how people treat each other, right? You know, yeah, parts of the world they use different words, but you know, collegiality and respect are two that you know often come to mind about you know the sort of the targets that organizations will strive for with regard to the use of the model and trying to impact their values moving in the right direction. <clears throat> mm. And so, from a, I guess, from a, a systems management point of view, for safety systems management, the just culture model sits squarely in in that, doesn't it? At the end of the day. Yeah, and, and how it's defined in terms of, you know, what it should look like and some of the phraseology used and, you know, vary by, you know, regulatory entities around the world. You know, EASA has a lot of descriptive words about what they think just culture ought to be. In the U.S., when you talk about safety management, there's very little, you know, that's actually defined. Um, in other parts of the world, you know, there are attempts to sort of better define it, but that's, I think that's one of the challenges going forward is that we have to do a, a much better job defining what it is and, and how it's applied and, you know, really train regulatory agencies or national aviation authorities particularly to, to embrace the application of just culture within the context of an organization. I mean, in the U.S., just one example, the aviation safety action programs that exist in the United States to facilitate, you know, open reporting and a sort of that three-legged stool where management, labor, and the regulator all sit around a table after a near miss has happened or an adverse safety event has happened and, and attempt to be just and fair. They attempt to actually apply justice, but the problem is there's no consistent understanding of what that looks like yeah. across those three entities, right? So. There, there are challenges and, and, you know, we would say probably in the aviation space, EOS is further down the road, um, but they haven't gone nearly as far as, as we had hoped because they published regulation back in 2014, I believe, if I remember right, around just culture and, and provided some additional guidance material on that. Mm -hmm. but. Legally speaking, and from a terminology perspective, it was a bit of a mess in terms of yeah. how it how it clarified the the application of just culture because, in fact, it just really muddied the water. And I'm sure yeah. my EASA friends will lob grenades over at me if they hear this. <laughs> that, that's okay. <laughs>
Um, I've, I've heard you use this term restorative justice. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, that's a popular one too these days when depending on whether folks out there have, you know, read Sidney Decker, for example, he's a, a big restorative justice person. Um, we teach the concept in the sense of there's right times in, in our model, um, even if you're talking about you know, conduct more towards the higher end of the culpability spectrum. There, there are right terms for what we call application of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Um, and, and yes, those are theological terms, but they, they have a context and a role to play in, in the sense of how management in particular or managers can engage in the rehabilitation process to help people come back into the workspace after they've been involved in something. Um, you know, historically, we've we simply said, you know, the life cycle of an event is, you know, the time from which it happens till the time an employee is brought back into the workspace in, in good condition, right, mentally and mm -hmm. physically. Right? Yeah. And so, so there's definitely a, a view in our model of just culture that even though we might say you engaged in, you know, one of the higher levels of culpability conduct, there is a place where managers can say we don't think it's the right course of action to take severely punitive action against them. Mm. We think sometimes, you know, rehabilitating them because they've got value, because we identified significant system problems, combination of all those, you know, there are times and places where you make a decision to take a less culpable, you know, mm. uh, application or, or, you know, part of the model as a sanction mm. and focus more on bringing an employee back into the workplace in good mental and physical condition. And that's, that's just value. Right. That's value for the employee. That's value for the organization. And ultimately, it's, that's what's just and fair. And, and mm. so although we don't, don't really, you know, lean heavily into the term restorative justice, we do believe in restoration for sure. Mm. And so it sounds to me like one of the most or well, one of the key features of all this is setting the rules. And so every organization is going to be different, isn't it, in, as to what the rules are? Or is there like an overarching platform that they have to work to? Well, we don't think of them as rules per se, but we do think about, uh, we do encourage organizations to, to think, uh, give sort of a thoughtful, uh, I call it thoughtful deliberation, right? To, to thoughtfully deliberate when they're gonna use our, our, you know, our just culture model, our just culture algorithm, What's the process for that? What are going to be the thresholds or the triggers that that cue that whole process up? So maybe I don't think about them as rules, but I we do want to make sure that organizations develop their own set of triggers to say, you know, if certain classes of events happen, if certain, you know, things just point us to the fact that somebody made a risky choice, we have to have a, a process in place that where we can consistently apply just culture. Mm -hmm. um, the, the best practice over the years has been simply a concept we've called event review groups where there's a, a cross-functional, you know, multidisciplinary team that agrees to, to oversee application of, of just culture and using the model, using the algorithm and, and, and using it as the basis for judgment. And that event review group process is, has been sound over the decades and will continue to be. Um, I've helped people set those up. I've chartered them. I've refereed a few. I've, yeah. done, I've done a lot of a lot of work in that space. And we know that you know when you start talking about application, that's definitely a best practice. Is how do, how does that 
play itself out in, in a particular organization. Mm. And how long do you see you know, putting a just culture system into place within an organization? What sort of time frame are you looking at with that sort of thing? When we talk about an, an initial implementation roadmap with a, you know, a medium to large size organization, we usually give them a, a package of work that in a absent, you know, pandemics and things that significantly skew the timelines, we're mm -hmm. usually talking about about two years, one to yeah. two years. Okay. If they move aggressively, I'd say one, if they are, you know, a typical organization that has lots of other initiatives going on simultaneously, it's, it's definitely a, a first two year roadmap. We've seen mm -hmm. implementation efforts, you know, span two to five to even seven years. Right? Yeah. Right. So when do you know you're at it? When do you know you've reached this just culture nirvana? You're never there. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that well, would be the what, answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what we, what we say is, A, we do say you're never there because, unfortunately, you're only one bad transaction away from, from mm. uh, you know, doing some damage. Um, yeah. And we've seen that occasionally, but I would say... If anything, um, you know, when when an organization can see both leading and lagging indicators that suggest to them that either in in actuality there's less risk happening in their business quantifiably that they can put their finger on, then that's mm -hmm. one marker of success. Things like reduction in grievances, that'd be another great marker of success, uh, right? So yeah. there are things that kind of flag you on the journey that says, hey, we're, you know, we're doing better, right? Yeah. Even if you have less instances of bullying, harassment, intimidation, that sort of thing, that's another marker if you've tied it directly to your just culture implementation. So, you know, yeah. again, since we talk about the safety space for sure, but we also, you know, the reduction in adverse events can indicate, you know, a healthy trend in the right direction. But even just people treating people, treating each other more, more aligned with the organization's values is yeah. a positive indicator as well. Yeah. I find it absolutely fascinating. I, I think um, it's an area that every organisation has to try to embrace in some way, shape or form. I, I know we, a lot of us try to do it on our own, but obviously there's, uh, there's a company like yours that can actually give assistance and, and guidance and, and bring, uh, bring that model into play. Um, no, that's really, really fascinating. And uh, the future, what what are you looking at in the future for yourself uh, in terms of um, developing things? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, right now, you know, what's in front of us is, uh, and it's a good thing, but it's, I think it's indicative of where we're at in, in the course of history. But you know, the, the pandemic has, has really created a lot of sort of pent up demand. So um, we're seeing an increase in people sort of returning back to the just culture space now that they've got some ability to breathe. Um, in, in particular, yeah. healthcare, you know, very, you know, direct correlation in terms of bandwidth and the ability to, to now step back and say, okay, we made it through that. Let's, let's get back to the path that we wanted to in terms of how we become mm -hmm. the organization that we want, wanted to, wanted to be. I think the the near term challenge for aviation is just to get out of that. It's only about safety space, you know. Mm. That that's the headspace that aviation still kind of sits in, and you know, 
again, safety is a it has to be a given, and safety culture has to be a given in order to to operate effectively as a good business. And we fully, you know, acknowledge and support that. But you know, our model is value centric, right? So wherever an organization mm-hmm. wants to get better around its collective value set and how people not only how are people making decisions, you know, in the context of safety, but how how are people, you know, treating each other and is the organization aspirationally becoming what it wants to be? Yeah. And I, I think all all airlines have gone through quite a bit of a shakeup. And you know, I think there's huge issues with labor um either in the process of happening or about to happen. I think with uh, you know, so many pilots leaving the industry, so many players within the industry leaving the industry, and and then we've got new people coming in on board, and we've got challenges finding people, and then there's just this recreation of the actual culture that you had before the pandemic, which may be a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not too sure, but yeah, it's a huge yeah. challenge. Yeah. yeah, there are. I mean, you know, there's sort of bastions that we would like to to work, you know, more and more, and you know the discussion earlier about labor, you know, just historically sort of takes me back and just makes me reminded of the fact that that that's a real fertile field if we were really to, to, to collectively get into it and really work Mm. with some, some of the larger labor organizations um, at the national and international level. I mean, that there would be, I think a ton of opportunity there, but also some really great work if we could all roll up our sleeves and do it together. But yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's really fantastic. Look, Jerry, look, thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us. I, I know you're uh, you're in a different time zone there in the US, and uh, we appreciate <laughs> the fact that you've you've uh, stayed up to to have a chat with us. Um, and uh, look, we look forward to talking with you again soon. And if anyone really wants to uh, look at uh, the just culture model that Jerry's talked about, we just recently uh, released. Uh, um, a, a safety forum with Jerry on this very topic, and it is available on our website, the aviationsafetycommunity.com.au. And uh, please visit us and uh, and see what we've got there. There's a lot of other things too that might be of interest. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jerry. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. You get it. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Aviation Safety Community podcast. Please don't forget to visit our website, www.aviationsafetycommunity.com.au. We'll see you in the next episode.